Hey, what's going on? Welcome to another episode of the If You Mark in Your Bible podcast. My name is Josh, and today we are studying 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the If You Mark in Your Bible podcast. This podcast is associated with the Scattered Abroad Network. So be sure to like, share, and subscribe, and check out the episode notes below for contact information including websites and where we can be found on social media. Again, thank you for your support, and let's begin our Bible study. Studying with us today is Brandon Blackwell. Brandon, will you introduce yourself to those who may not know you? My name is Brandon Blackwell. I am a 2022 graduate of the Memphis School of Preaching. I was classmates with Josh at the school, and that was a blessing. And I preach full-time now at the Thyatira Church of Christ, that is in the Senatobia, Mississippi area. And so I'm just grateful for the opportunity to be on here today. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, Brandon is no stranger to the podcast. In fact, I'd recommend that you go check out episode one, uh, the very first episode of this podcast, uh, where Brandon and I discussed uh, Nathan coming to David with the parable of the ewe lamb. Uh, I enjoyed the study, and I know you will too. Uh, as mentioned, we are looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, uh, verses 12 through 17. Paul writing to Timothy. He had left Timothy in Ephesus. He's writing from Macedonia, uh, and he writes this letter to help Timothy, a young preacher, uh, help lead that congregation to Ephesus in the way that it should go. And so uh, we'll get into that. You have anything to add as far as context uh, goes, Brandon? Just in my Bible, I wrote Heather's breaking up each section just to kind of outline the chapter to help give context. And so verses one and two, I have simply Paul's intro. And particularly in verse two, you see his relationship with Timothy. He calls Timothy his own son in the faith. You see his typical greeting of grace, mercy, and peace. Verses three through seven, I have labeled as no other doctrine. And you particularly see that in verse number three. And so there were false teachers. And that's a big theme throughout this book that Paul's warning Timothy about. And people are giving into ideologies, fables, genealogies. But Paul says, preach no other doctrine. Then verses 8 through 11, I have labeled as the proper scope of the law. And then in verses 12 through 17, which of course, that's what we're mainly looking at today. I have that labeled as Paul's tribute to the gospel and its offer. And I really think that's significant because once you get there, that's exactly what you have is this wonderful tribute from Paul about his gratefulness, his great attitude toward Christ and the opportunity that the Lord has given him. That's a great way to put it. I'd also recommend if you want to see it uh, for those who may be new to the podcast, since we are starting 2024 uh, with uh, the Scattered Broad Network, you can catch these podcasts on YouTube. Uh, where there's a visual, we're recording ourselves speaking, but there also be uh, the markings going along with it. So something, if you're listening to this as you travel and you want to remember these things, uh, you can't check it out on YouTube uh, and, and see what's exactly being written uh, helps me. And it helps me personally just going through it again, hearing the lesson over again. I uh, enjoy that. So uh, now that we have the administrative stuff out of the way, let's begin with our text I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. 
and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What do you have there, Brandon? Under verse number 12, I put a reference to Galatians 1.15, and that's when you see Paul talking about how he was separated from his mother's womb. And you know, that's such an interesting passage because what exactly all does that entail? I don't know if we know all the details, but you know, the Lord providentially chose Paul. It wasn't something he forced Paul to do. Paul made the, his own decision to serve the Lord, but the Lord prepared Paul. He saw that he was the right kind of person. And you see in verse number 12, it says, for that he counted me faithful. And so I put an underline under the word counted and wrote out beside it, the Lord could count on Paul. And I think what's so significant there is that Paul was the type of person that the Lord could count on. And so we need to look at our lives and make sure we examine ourselves that we're somebody the Lord looks at and can also count on. Can he view us as somebody who's reliable and trustworthy to do his work? Also, Beside uh, verse number 12, I wrote out, without Christ, Paul felt he could do nothing, but with Christ, he could do all things, cross-reference Philippians 4.13. And that's really what it all came down to. Paul knew where ultimately his power and his ability came from, and that was from the Lord. It was because of the Lord that he was able to do great things in his kingdom. Excellent point. I've underlined the pointing me to his service and just put, despite his past, Paul was still called to serve. And I think that's an important lesson just for humanity in general. Uh, there are a lot of people who don't think that they're capable of, of serving God because of the things that they've done in the past. And I know there are some who maybe even from a new convert standpoint, uh, may be hesitant to take any role in the church because of things that they've done in the past. Uh, and we're going to get to this in just a moment, so I won't give any spoilers. But the point being is, is everyone has a responsibility to serve God, whether you're in the church or outside the church. If you're outside the church, your responsibility is to get in the church and then serve God. But uh, that expectation or obligation falls to everyone. Right. Uh, if you'll allow me to develop something just real quick um, for this. Uh, again, uh, Timothy's in Ephesus. Uh, we, we read about Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. Paul established the church there. We read about in Acts chapter 20, starting around verse 28, he's going to start leaving. He's going to leave a charge or, or a warning to the elders there at that congregation. He's going to tell them, uh, to oversee the flock, which Christ, uh, left you over, which he died for purchased with his blood. And then he warns them that there will come those wolves in sheep's clothing who will try and lead members of the flock astray. And then he'll even say that there are those within the congregation that are to come up and start deceiving people and so forth. And so he warns them against that. And if you take that thread and then you drive it and you follow that thread all the way to Revelation 2, in Revelation 2, Jesus addresses the congregation at Ephesus. And I think what's going to happen, what we see in, in Timothy, in this particular section of Scripture, verses 12 through 17, is Paul is going to put the church at Ephesus and, by extension, every Christian in its proper place concerning two, two ideologies that tend to lean in the extremes, if that makes sense. And the first one here uh, that, that we're going to mention is false teaching. And how to how to deal with false teaching, because in Acts chapter twenty, he warns them of it. 
In Revelation 2, Jesus says, you hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans, you hate false teaching, which I hate also. So that's the commendation that he has for that congregation. But then he tells them, you've left your first love. And I think evoked in that is the love for Christ. I think they took a pharisaical approach to the New Testament, the same way the Pharisees took uh, the approach to the old law. They separated God from the law. I think somehow uh, the church at Ephesus had separated the new covenant from Christ, its founder, uh, the one who died for it. So uh, whatever it is, however they were doing it, I think the way we see it today, though, is uh, sometimes we, and I'm talking about the church, sometimes the church, we have the, if we're not careful, we will use God's word as a means to be hateful and unloving to individuals, if that makes sense. And I think there are two extremes that, that we see. I won't say that the church at Ephesus in Acts 20 was soft, but they were at the infancy stages of having to operate as a congregation without the inspired apostle being there to guide them. And then you come over to Revelation 2, whether it's early date or late date, and you have them hardened uh, to false teach and left their first love. And I think what we have here in, in the middle of those two instances is this book uh, or this epistle written to Timothy. And the reason I say that is because you go to verse five of chapter one, it says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. And then we come down to verse 12 and Paul's basically making the point that had Jesus looked at me the same way, sometimes we look at those who are in the wrong, I wouldn't be doing the things I'm doing. And that's why, and that's a big uh, reason that he's thankful for the opportunity that Christ gave him in this ministry. Uh, and we have to keep in mind there is never an instance, and, and here's the extremes, the extremes that we talked about earlier. You have being soft on false teaching, and then you have the other end where uh, you use your stance for false teaching uh, for, to do things that you shouldn't be doing. And that's the best way I can say it. And, and Paul's putting us in that middle. Always stand for truth, but when we look at false teaching, marking false teachers, church discipline, uh, false ideologies, whatever it is. And we combat those things with the truth. With There's never an instance where we should not do that. Anytime right. something contradicts God's word, we have a responsibility to stand for truth. But our motivation behind it has to be not from the standpoint of I'm marking that guy because I want, I want him to be shunned. I want him uh, to be ridiculed. I want to hurt his reputation. We mark, we teach, we correct people for the sole purpose of bringing them back to Christ. And I think that's what Paul is. That's the, the, the theme that's running through him. Why is he given an account of his background? Cause he's making the point that if I'm capable of being forgiven and I'm capable of working for the Lord, then there's possible that some of these people that are teaching falsely, are capable of doing so because when I was doing the things I was doing, I was doing it out of ignorance, which he said at the end of verse 13, it's possible that these people are doing it out of ignorance. What do you have there? I just think about that from the standpoint of, you know, you're absolutely right because you can never 
um, encourage false doctrine. That's never the motivation, but different situations are to be handled differently. You think about Apollos in Acts 18. He was preaching John's baptism at a time that John's baptism was no longer valid. And so Aquila and the Priscilla, they took him aside. They taught him the ways of the Lord more perfectly. And so in that instance, they handled it privately. But then you have other examples like Galatians 2, where Paul, you have the instance with Peter, who seemingly was fellowshipping with the Gentiles, eating with them. But then the Jews from James showed up and all of a sudden Peter acts like he wants nothing to do with them. Now, in that instance, Paul rebuked Peter publicly for that. But mm -hmm. the point is, Paul was not doing that to embarrass Peter. We know that. That was not the intent. It wasn't hateful. But the point was, one, this was public and it needed to be dealt with publicly. But also, Peter knew better. And you think about it from the standpoint of Peter. He was a man of great influence. And so for all those people to see Peter not fellowshipping with the Gentiles anymore, they might would reason, well, if Peter did it, we can do it. And then mm -hmm. Paul saw it and Paul didn't say anything, so it must be okay. So different situations are to be handled differently. But you know from Paul, from what he says, like you pointed out in chapter one, verse number five of this book of First Timothy, the goal is love. It's always love is to bring people back to the gospel, which is the most loving thing you can do because it's in the gospel, Romans 1, 16, where we find the power to save. James 1, 22 and 23, even after you become a Christian, you have to continue to receive the word. That is where our hope is. That's where the power is. And so it's always done from a loving motivation. Great point. Great point. Underline, I know this isn't part of our passage, but in verse five, just underline that phrase, the aim of our charge is love. And then that sums up and, and keep that in your mind as you go through. Great point about Peter and uh, Aquila and Priscilla. Jesus was the same way. I remember, I, mean, I think of, I don't remember, but I think of John 4 when he's having the conversation with, like you said, the circumstance dictates uh, our approach. Uh, the woman at the well, the Samaritan, talks about uh, false worship. Uh, the Samaritans worshiped on Mount Gerizim uh, and challenged the Jews uh, from the standpoint of worshiping Jerusalem. It was a conflict. And Jesus corrects her, but he's gentle with her and he's, he's, kind and loving and patient. Um, then you look at the Pharisees, the ones who should know better, like Peter should have known better. And Jesus is uh, a very forthright. Again, Paul's intention, Aquila and Priscilla's intention, and Jesus' intention was all to, to not embarrass anyone or push people away, but was to bring them to the truth. Uh, right. and, uh, and, and we can say that John 3, a Pharisee comes to Jesus, Nicodemus, and Jesus uh, treats him with respect. And, and now he does hold him accountable. There's a point when he, he questions, oh, you're a teacher. Uh, he's trying to explain spiritual matters to him. Nicodemus didn't get any heels. And you're a teacher of the people. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, so he's still, you know, and just like Paul held Peter accountable. Uh, the, the, the different approach is a great, great way to look at it. Right. Uh, what else do you have on 13 and 14? Uh, in verse number 13, <clears throat> of course, this is where Paul mentions his different uh, crimes, so to speak, that he's committed. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, injurious. And so blasphemer, I wrote above that, one who speaks evil of God or man. It could be either one. I think you see both in the New Testament. And Paul was likely guilty of both. You remember Acts 7 and 8, he was persecuting Christ by persecuting Christ's people, by persecuting mm -hmm. the church. Uh, persecutor, I just wrote a reference to Acts 7, Acts 8. He persecuted. He was involved in the persecution of Stephen. He was making havoc of the church, Acts 8. 
And injurious, I have a note, refers to the attitude. And so this was one who was violent in his persecution. He hated Christians. He hated the church. And he wanted to take them out. And then also at the end of verse 13, and um, I think this is so impressive when he says, because I did it ignorantly and unbelief. That's why he says he obtained mercy. And so I wrote beside that, had Paul been a willful sinner, he would not, he would have never been chosen. God has a different attitude toward those who sin knowingly and those who sin unknowingly. And then mm -hmm. I wrote a cross reference to Luke 23, 34. You remember Jesus, of course, on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so obviously all sin is wrong. Any sin can cause a person to be lost. And so from that standpoint, yes, there is a sense in which all sin is equal. But I very much do believe that God views a person who shakes their fist in his face and says, I know this is wrong. I'm going to do it anyway, versus a person who is in ignorance. I think God views those two things differently. And I think we see that in Paul's life. A great point. And I think you're right. Uh, now, again, all sin has to be dealt with properly, uh, like you mentioned. It reminds me of that that adage where uh, it says a sincere man can be wrong, but when a sincere man is met with the truth, he either ceases to be wrong or he ceases to be sincere. Uh, and that's that's the difference. I think that's what you're talking about. You got John one verse, first John one verse seven, talking about walking in the light and having the blood of Christ cleansing us as we walk in the light. So I think you're right there from that standpoint. Uh, and, and again, all, all sin has to be dealt with, uh, properly according to God's word. But right. the issue is, is some people you bring their sin before them, like Paul, and you see a complete 180. And we, we recorded this yesterday, but we had some technical issues. So we're recording, but we talked about Paul being the conundrum of the new Testament. So those who don't believe in the new Testament cannot answer for Paul. Uh, a Jew of all Jews, uh, uh, from a career standpoint, is a religious leader among the Jews on a trajectory that if he had married the right woman, probably would have been the the, the, the most powerful person in uh, Jewish politics that there was. And then one day, completely turns a 180 and his life goes the exact opposite direction. And he starts to associate with those that he at one, one time persecuted. And they cannot explain it from a secular standpoint. There's no, no way to explain. It. You and I can explain it very easily uh, because we use the words of the Holy Writ in order to explain it. But, but from a secular standpoint, no one can understand Paul. And, and that's to me a faith building uh, facet of the Bible is that you have the enemy of Jesus now thanking Jesus for the opportunity to serve him. It's it's and you you study Paul. That's why he's an interesting study, but that that's it's difficult to get around the change that Paul made in his life, and he makes that point. One last thing, uh, just from the blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, and, and you made this point that is violent. Uh, I like the way Paul goes from lesser to greater uh, in that standpoint, which I think is a progression of sin. Uh, it starts small, and then eventually, and Jesus made the same point. You know, adultery doesn't start. With the adulterous act, it starts with lusting after a woman in your heart. Murder doesn't start with taking somebody's life. It starts with hatred in the heart. And so there's that progression of sin that we see there uh, and why it's so dangerous. Even even when you well, how we would rank the smaller sins, the little white lie, well, the little white lie turns into 
whatever down the a big black life you want to call it that however you down the road uh and so um that's something we have here uh in this that i think paul does a good job uh, of pointing out you have anything out what do you have on 14 i don't have a lot on verse 14 i simply put a reference to ephesians 1 3 and then galatians 3 27 through 29 because paul makes the point that abundant with faith and love and then he says which is in christ jesus and so ephesians 1 3 tells us all spiritual blessings are in christ galatians 3 27 through 29 tells us how we get into Christ. And that's, of course, putting him on in baptism. Excellent. I've circled overflowed and put, even though this note by it, even though there was an abundance of sin, there's a greater abundance of grace. And then I put in parentheses and love and mercy, because uh, I think all that goes hand in hand. Um, and and that's the point he's making. And I drew a line. We're going to get to 15 in a minute, but right while we're at it, I drew a line from the word overflow down to the phrase of whom I am chief or of whom I am foremost in verse 15 and just iterate that Paul's making the point that uh, as he continues the thought of verse 13, no matter how much wickedness I had committed, there was still sufficient grace to forgive even me and put me in, in his service. Um, so that's, uh, that's one thing. This brings us to the second extreme I think Paul touches on in this section of scripture and I've underlined that, that word with the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with, and that's what I underlined twice, the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And I think what we have here is an understanding that man must show appreciation with his actions. Our salvation uh, requires action on our part and and that's that's what when i talk about the extremes we've got one extreme where there are those who believe that they've committed so much sin for such a great quality of sin or such a great quantity of sin that god's not going to have anything to do with them but then you have the other extreme where they say you can do nothing because god god's grace does everything right and and paul brings us back to the middle he makes the point with the word overflowed that there's enough grace and mercy and love and the blood of Christ to forgive every sinner of every sin. But at the same time, he makes the point, you have an obligation to get to that grace. And like you mentioned with baptism, putting yourself into Christ, you want to think of it from, from a grace standpoint, you and I have to do things in order to put ourselves into that grace. And the example's been used all over the place, and and it's but it's and the reason it's been used every. We always say this, you know, like I don't know you've heard this before, but the reason we've heard it before is because it's such a perfect illustration. But if a car dealership says, "Hey, there's a free car down here," it calls you up and say, "We have a free car for you to come pick up. You need to come pick it up." Well, we well that's grace. That's gracious. That's a great. We didn't do anything to deserve that car. They just want to give it to us. Same way God wants to give us grace or, or eternal life. But they tell us to come down to the dealership and pick it up, then we have to go to the dealership. We can't say, oh, that was gracious. Well, the grace will take care of it. The car will appear on my driveway. No, and we understand it from that stand. Every one of us, a dealership offers us a free car and tells us to come pick it up. We're all coming down to pick it up. Some of us will even walk if we have to, to get to it. Uh, the same thing with grace. Uh, and Paul it reiterates that here. You have anything else in these passages? 
Um, nothing more through verses 12 through 14. Okay, let's look at 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. What do you have there? All right, verse 15. And of course, this is the verses 15 and 16 that everybody knows so well. And so verse 15, this is a faithful saying. Really, this is a trustworthy. This is a reliable saying. We would probably say it. This is reliable. This is trustworthy. Therefore, you should accept it. That's what Paul's saying. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And this is something that I heard Brother Cliff Goodwin do a sermon that he did. And I wrote this in my Bible, the main points. And so the title of the sermon was Four Truths from 1 Timothy 1, and it comes from our passage today. And so point number one, I wrote the truth about our Savior's purpose. That's verse 15. And that's the wonderful thing. I mean, like you say, it's one of those things we hear so much, but we should never take it for granted. And we hear it so much because it's so important. Verse 15, what's our Savior's purpose? To save sinners. That's what he said himself in Luke 19.10. You see that also, of course, John 3, 16 and 17. And so that's one of the greatest truths that we can know. The second point is the truth about our sinful past. That actually goes back to verse number 13, talking about Paul, blasphemer, persecutor, injurious. But the point is, you know, there's so many people who think I'm just so wicked. God could never save anybody like me. But Paul is making the point in this passage that if God can save me, he can save anybody. And that leads us to number three, the third point, the truth about our sure pattern. And that's verse 16. You see that Paul says, for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. And so Paul says, I'm the pattern. If God can save me again, he can save anybody. And I think this goes back to what you just mentioned a moment ago. The question is, how did Paul receive that mercy? Well, Paul had a part to play. The Lord is gracious. He's merciful. But you remember that Paul still had to do something. And so he met Ananias and then Ananias told him, arise, be baptized, calling on the name of the Lord. And that's how Paul's sins would be washed away. And so Paul played a part. And the thing that's so amazing is Paul's our pattern. And so it's been said, if we do what they did, we can be who they were. And so if we look at Paul's life and we say we want the mercy he had, the grace he received, what do we do? The answer is we do the same thing he did. And so we can look at his conversion in Acts 9, 22, 26, and learn how to become a Christian. And that's what the whole book of Acts is about. And then the final point is the truth about our soul's potential. And that goes back up to verse number 12. And the application there is simply, there's a lot of people who think, I think you mentioned this earlier about congregations. You know, we could never do what that congregation does. We don't have the money, the numbers. Maybe as an individual, I'm not as talented as brother so-and-so, but if the Lord can take the chief of sinners and turn him into the greatest preacher, save Jesus Christ, what can he do with us? And that's the point. And so there's so much rich application here in verse 15 and 16 and so many significant things. And you can see why this is such a beloved passage by so many people. That's a great, great outline. Verse 15, it says the saying is trustworthy. That phrase is used. And like you said, it's reliable. Uh, it's a, a foundation upon which we can stand uh, with full confidence and full assurance. It's used five times in the Pauline or in the, I'm sorry, in the pastoral epistles. And I think it's the only time that Paul uses these phrases in the Pauline epistles and in these pastoral epistles. 
but that thought of of this is something that cannot be changed uh this is a trustworthy saying in other words there's there's anything that that contradicts it is wrong is essentially what it's saying and we look at the phrase that follows that jesus christ came into the world to save sinners and i think there's a, a I think most people in the religious world who believe in Jesus and believe in the power of his blood will agree with this statement 100%. Jesus came to the world to save sinners. I can rely on that. I can stand on it sure-footed, and there's nothing that can contradict it, right? Right. Well, you go five, these five times that you see this saying is trustworthy. For example, chapter 3 and verse 1. And it talks about the one who over who uh, aspires to be an overseer. He desires a noble task and then talks about the qualifications of an elder. Or you go, I believe it's chapter four uh, and verse eight or nine. Uh, this is a trustworthy, a trustworthy saying and uh, deserving of full acceptance. And then he, uh, Paul talks about how godliness is valuable, not only in this life, but the next life. Uh, then you go, I believe it's chapter six, um, chapter six, no, I'm sorry, Second uh, Timothy, uh, chapter two and verse 11 talks about if we die with him, we'll live with him. Uh, but also if we deny him, he'll deny us. And then you go over to Titus, I believe, chapter uh, three and verse eight, when it talks about that those who devote themselves to good works will be pro it pro good works profit the man not only in this life, but the next. And the point I'm trying to make is this, is that we all accept the fact that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But then, unfortunately, there are those who would accept that without any type of controversy or argument. But then you go over to the qualifications of an overseer, even though Paul used the same phrase, and they want to try and bend that a little bit. And they want to skirt, and they'll... They'll argue, well, he didn't really mean this, or he was writing this because of the culture of the time, or this is only specific to the church at Ephesus and really doesn't apply everywhere else. Well, right. Paul uses the same language that he associates with Jesus coming into the world to save sinners. Uh, same thing with with living with Christ, accepting Christ, uh, and if we deny him, he'll deny us. I mean, sometimes though, in those other areas that we mentioned earlier, people want to, well, and they want to find the loopholes and they want to find the gray areas and all that. But Paul uses the same language, just as reliable as the fact that Jesus came into the world to save sinners are the qualifications of elders are the fact that godly living profits us, uh, not, not only here, but in, uh, eternity as well. And that if we deny Christ, he'll deny us. And, right. and so, uh, I think that's an important saying. Yeah, we kind of look at it, and, and yeah, we understand it's a faithful saying, but when we look at what it's applied to in verse 15, and then we take the times it's used, it tells us that these other facets in which Paul used this word is just as important as Jesus coming into the world to save sinners, and we should approach it that way. Right. What else do you have? That's a great point. I also just think about this. This is something I want to point out, and this is a point I've heard from, not, it's not original to me, but in verse number 16, again, when Paul talks about the fact that he is a pattern. And so the point is that I'm trying to make is we don't become a Christian in a different way that Paul became a Christian. And so, you know, so often the debate in the religious world that you talked about earlier is people want to say it's grace alone. We don't do anything. If we say we do anything, that's us taking away from God's glory. But the truth of the matter is 
we do play a part in our salvation. It's all from God's grace and his goodness, but he requires us to do something. And so, so many times people will go to Romans 5, 1, we're justified by faith. They'll go to Ephesians. They'll go to this different passages throughout the Bible, trying to teach faith only. All you have to do is believe. And of course, we believe that faith saves us, but it's not faith alone. And what's mm -hmm. significant about this, so many of the passages that people go to, Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, are written by the Apostle Paul. And so if we can see Paul, the pattern, how he became a Christian, then that will tell us a lot about things. Because Paul's not going to write something in Romans or Galatians that contradicts how he became a Christian in the book of Acts. And so that's something I wanted to point out that I think is valuable to remember. Great point. Um, one last thing on 15, then we'll go to 16 and 17. Um, I circled the word full acceptance. Uh, and that just go, and that just solidifies what, what I just mentioned earlier and, and what you just said, uh, is that is there's no halfway, uh, ha there's not a halfway Christian, if that makes sense. Uh, right. or, or half salvation. I, I don't want to say a halfway Christian, but there's, there's not half salvation. Either you commit to salvation fully or you deny salvation fully but but the full acceptance is that thought of 100 percent putting the gospel and jesus and his will as our top priority and everything else is affected by that we adjust everything else in our lives uh to accept this fact that jesus came and came into the world safe sinners of whom i am chief uh and then the responsibilities that are involved therein uh, verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example for those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. What do you have there? One thing I forgot to mention on verse 16, under the word first, I wrote an underline and wrote beside it first in importance, not time. Because we know Paul wasn't the first man forgiven. People, the church began Acts 2. We see that on that day, 3,000 souls added. But he was first in importance. That's the whole context here. Now, verse 17, unto the king eternal, I wrote above that without beginning or end, immortal, not liable to death. And then finally, well, invisible, I wrote above that, uh, if I can read it here, unseen spiritual being, and then the only wise God, the true God, which separates him from all pagan gods. He is the one true God, a principle that's laid out all throughout the Bible. Excellent point. Um, and I want to piggyback on what you said, uh, as far as I just went it, when it says that me is the first or foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. I put Christ was merciful. So Paul could serve. There was a reason for Christ's mercy. Uh, you look at someone persecuting the church uh, could Christ have ended him at that per at that point? Any before he before before the crowd stoned Stephen? Could he have ended that 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 crowd? Yes. Could he have ended the crowd that was crucifying? Yes. Ten thousand angels. He told Peter, "I could call legions of angels to my protection, uh, and they would come." But the fact that he allowed Paul to continue on until Paul was at that point where he was willing to accept Christ. And I and I think that's important too. There's a point in which Paul was eligible to uh, willing to accept Christ. Uh, I find it hard to believe that he was persecuting the church and no one mentioned Jesus to him, or why they were willing to go to the arenas and die. 
So there, so from an evangelistic standpoint, sometimes our first evangelistic effort may not be the one that's successful, but it plants that seed in which God's going to eventually give the increase. And so I think that's something to a point, but also what we want to pull from is we have an obligation in our salvation, right? If there was no obligation in our salvation, then either everybody's saved or no one's saved. And that's how it works. Uh, because if there was no responsibility on our part, uh, as some would claim, then the grace of God touches everyone. And you can't argue that that sin is worse than the other. Uh, everyone is going. But Paul makes it perfectly clear, like that grace appears. You have an obligation in your salvation to play. Uh, now, that opportunity and that obligation is not there without grace. Uh, but again, we, we want to stress it because it's so important that we have actions. There's There's too much... Uh, misconception around grace and mercy and love of God, uh, Romans eleven twenty two, the goodness and severity of God. So there is a just part of God as well uh, that we have to respect just as much as we do the grace, mercy, and love of God. Uh, and so if it sounds like we're trying to beat that to death in this passage, uh, we are uh, because it's it's been uh, it's been misrepresented for so long and in so many ways, uh, and it's uh, a very simple uh, concept to to understand because the bible is very direct with how it presents it it doesn't hide it behind any type of secret language is very straightforward <laughs> i like what you put uh, as far as the characteristics of uh, god in that area the only thing uh, that i would add uh, from just what i've marked i put be honor and glory forever and ever and 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 i tied that back to um, the, as an example, and then I also tied it back, uh, to the previous verse, uh, appointing me to his service in verse 12 and just made, uh, the simple note, consider all Paul endured for Christ. So think about what he's doing here. He talks about Christ meeting him on the road to Damascus, essentially choosing him to serve, giving him this ministry using him as an example, and then he praises God. And Paul was beaten, was it, seven times? Was it seven times? 39, uh -huh. whatever. Uh, it slips me now, but, you know, 39 because they wouldn't go to 40. He was shipwrecked. He was imprisoned uh, many times. He was eventually executed, lost his life on account of Jesus. And when you look at the life of Paul from a persecution standpoint, it's paradoxical when you start to look at, he says, to be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. In other words, all this stuff that I, the, the thorn in the side that he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, you think about all this stuff that Paul experienced and he's thanking God for the opportunity to serve in that fashion. Right. And, and so when you and I, none of us have been, and I, I say no one, no one who's likely listening to this, there may be some uh, that have existed, but none of us that, that I know, no one I know personally has suffered to the extent which Paul suffered. Right. And so if, if Paul endured, and you look at second Corinthians one, where he was almost, they thought they were going to die. He was taken out of the city and stoned and left for dead. And then comes back in the city and keeps preaching uh, among all that. And he can thank God for the opportunity to serve him. Then what are you and I complaining about? Why is our faith wavering? Why are there times where we question whether we can do this or not? Right. Uh, and I think Paul, like you said, 
He's the, and I think when he says, I am the foremost sinner, I think when you look at the life of Paul and how he lived it, he lived it with that understanding that I have, what he's essentially saying here is, is I have used more grace than anyone else. And and so that's his mentality, which uh, is a great, uh, great thought. What else do you have? Uh, One more note I have beside verse number 15 and 16. If Christ can save the chief of sinners, he can save any sinner. And that's really the whole point of this passage. And, you know, sometimes people chop this up to Paul simply being humble. But I really think there's so much more to it than that. And that's the whole context. Paul's making the point, if he can save me as wicked as I was after all the things I've done, he certainly can save you. And that's a glorious thing. The illustration, it was Brother Mark Garner when we were in Memphis School preaching. He talked about, imagine Paul standing there and saying, line up every sinner who's ever lived from the most wicked to the least wicked, and you can put me at the top of the list every single time. And Paul says, look at me at the top. If Christ can save me, he can save you. And again, it's one of those things. We hear it so much, but we should never, ever take it for granted because it's because of that truth that we have hope today. Excellent. Excellent. That is a great way to close it. Brandon, thank you for coming on. Uh, appreciate you coming on two days in a row so we could get the technical stuff fixed. Uh, great study. Thoroughly enjoyed it. For those who are listening, thank you. Uh, please share, uh, subscribe, and let others know about this. And until next time. <laughs>